Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. County Sergeant, retired Michael W. Street, is the sketch cop. He's one of a kind crime fighter who's frequently called into action by police departments seeking help solving their most difficult cases. For over three decades, Michael has provided signature images for the country's most notorious murders, rapes, and kidnapping, kidnappings, including the kidnapping and murder of five year old Samantha Runyon as well as the Baton Rouge serial killer. The sketch cop has fought crime coast to coast from Los Angeles to Baltimore, Salt Lake City to Baton Rouge. Along the way, he has papered the walls of police squad rooms with sketches of their city's most dangerous criminals. In this collection of true crime stories, Michael shares cases from his own portfolio. He describes how he connects with and empowers courageous victims and eyewitnesses from all walks of life. Using their descriptions, the author creates lifelike sketches of the assailants with an accuracy that has led to quick identifications and captures. 
Sketch Cop, Drawing a Line Against Crime, provides readers a glimpse at some of Michael W. Street's career cases and the significant role he plays in the criminal justice system. The book that we're profiling this evening is Sketch Cop, Drawing a Line Against Crime, with my special guest, Sergeant, journalist and author, Michael W. Street. Mixed up there, but I'm glad to be on. I'm glad to discuss the book with you and your guests, or I'm sorry, you and your fans there. Absolutely. Now let's let's start off, Michael. Um, I gave people a little bit of an idea of what what happens with this book and what this book is all about, but very very uh, very little detail. So I think it's very important to the book. Why don't you give us your background yourself? You said your your father was a police officer, but there was much more to it in your early environment and your background. So tell us your background and ha- how you came to want to be a police officer and how it came to be that you combined your love of art and combined artistry and your police uh, background and your interest in police enforcement to be able to combine these two things into what you have appropriately called sketch cop. Sure. Uh- yeah, I grew up in a police household. Uh, as long as I can remember, my father was a police officer. He eventually retired as a police chief. But uh, being as that we lived in the same town he policed in, there were always police stopping by, hanging out, coming over for dinner, there at the holidays. So I knew all of them. I listened to their stories. I knew their background. And so I was pretty much inundated with it. But at the same time, you know, like most kids, I had a variety of interests, and I was really interested in art as a kid. And I just doodled and drew, nothing really serious growing up. And as I got older, uh, towards high school graduation, so what am I going to do with my life? And I thought about being an artist, and I realized that, you know, I would probably start it up because unless you were really popular, had some sort of niche type of art, you were going to be like everyone else. And I always wanted to stand out somehow. So I went ahead and, and went into police work as, as a cadet just out of high school because Every, every profile I took said, you know, you are helpful to people, you want to help people, and you like being outside, and, and um, that's what police work afforded me, the ability to help people, be outside, get that adrenaline rush, be the first one there. And the art was always there as I went into police work, and one night I was off and was enjoying dinner at home watching television. I love to watch the news, and I still do. And I happened to see a composite sketch flash on the screen. I, I, I dropped my fork. I'm like, that's it. That's, that's the epiphany. That's the, that's the thunderbolt, the lightning strike. It's, this is what I want to do. This is how I combine my love for art with my desire to help people in public service. So um, I started training, and, and uh, you know, I still love catching bad guys. And for me, you know, I like the car chases. I like chasing people down alleys and stuff, and all the cops and robbers stuff. Um, but I wanted to find a way to, to set myself apart from my peers and, and find another way to uh, further help people and catch bad guys and catch, more, and, and catch some of the worst people. And so when I started taking courses in police sketching and, and learning how to, to sketch the bad guys and talk to people and, and turn their words into pictures, um, you know, I, I learned that there was much more in terms of age progression, facial reconstruction, so many facets that I could learn that I could add to my forensic toolbox and and again, uh, you know, further my reach in law enforcement. So, um, so when people came to, you know, ask me, what do you do? I said, I'm a police sketch artist. And I, they said, well, they didn't really, they couldn't wrap their head around it. So I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a sketch cop. I go, oh, okay, you, you're a police officer sketches. I said, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's it. And so the word kind of stuck and the name stuck. And uh, 
I've used it ever since in terms of the title of the book, uh, you know, facial composite software products that my company sells and, and training and such. So it, it's, it's SketchCop is my brand. And, um, and that's how I describe pretty much what I do in a word. Now, I did talk to the audience a little bit about that it was a confluence of, of things that had uh, had occurred. At you, one of the pioneers in this uh, digital uh, facial imagery, uh, but also you started off with, with pen and paper, pencil and paper. And when people do think of, of, of police sketches, that's what we do think of. So that's what I had told the audience that we would be, be discussing with your book, Sketch Cop. But you provide a very good example and also... Um, how all facets of law enforcement before DNA and before some of the other forensic sciences were either discredited or, or as has happened, have been developed. So you talk about December 11th, 1980, and you talk about getting, learning a little bit about along the way about what not to do or how to do things a little bit differently. So you were sort of thrown into the fire here with this um, Dwayne McKinney. So maybe tell us a little bit about this. I think this you said this was your very first. So tell us a little bit about this case and what you learned and tell our audience about this case and how the composite drawing was an integral part of this case. Sure. Uh, it was my first, I believe it was my first murder case. I, I always believe that if you're, Starting any type of craft, say you're a construction person, you're building a house. I mean, I'd, I'd be building birdhouses and doghouses first and, and, and work my way up to building houses. And, and that's just the way my mind works. And it was the same way with this. When I first learned how to become a, the sketch artist, a police sketch artist, I was, you know, cutting my teeth, so to speak, on, on smaller cases, you know, misdemeanor type of cases and such. So when this murder happened, um, I was, you know, six months out of the, my first police sketch art school. And, you know, I was, just, I was trained how to interview people on crime scenes during the academy. It's a very, very different interview than you do as a forensic artist and even as a police investigator. And so it happened when I was working on shifts. I was in uniform and, and you know, I was dealing with traumatized people. And, you know, I was sitting behind a big desk and in uniform, badge and gun. And I was just like dripping with authority. And... I didn't realize at the time, because at the time, you know, it was a, a police sketch artist. It, it, the name imported it was all about the drawing, all about the art. So that's what I was focusing on, even though, you know, my, my skills are fairly raw, then I mean, I could draw a recognizable face, but not, not the skill level I have now. But, but I learned along the way that it was more about the ability to communicate with people, you know, the ability to get them to trust you very quick, and, and trust you with sharing their fears and their trauma and, and just how they were scared to death they were going to die or, or something that they happened to see, a traumatic event, like someone, you know, murdered in front of them. And I realized that, you know, all the authority, the trappings of authority, whether it was like putting a, a large barrier between me and the person, you know, w you know wearing a, you know, a, an offensive weapon like a gun and having a baton and stuff, and, and that just further, you know, froze people up, um, it was it was much different than I do now. I've, I've obviously I've, I've evolved, and so when I developed this sketch, I actually developed two sketches that night. I think that the person was so upset, and I didn't quite know how to help them other than the process of getting this drawing down on paper. Um, and it and it did look like Dwayne McKinney, 
And it did look like Herman Jacket, the person who eventually uh, figured had done the crime, um, you know, that it hit both marks, so to speak. Um, and, of course, they were able to, to exonerate Dwayne McKinney after, you know, 18 years in prison. Um, but I've learned a lot since then. And, and, and I think that anybody who believes it's about the art, um, they might be partially right. But really, like I tell people now, um, that, you know, I can sit around and draw pretty pictures all day. I can go to Disneyland or go on the boardwalk. Um, but if, 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 I, if I make the drawing all about me and I become so heavily invested ego-wise in it, then it becomes my drawing. And, it's, and so I, I, it's not about me. It's about them. So um, I take great care you know, to take that time to build a rapport with them, to get to know them quickly, to, to build that bridge, and to, and to get in and get out because people do have lives. They have short attention spans, and you have to get them while well, you can get them, so to speak, and, and you get one bite at the apple, so to speak, and you want to make it a good one. And uh, so I do a lot of things differently now in terms of, the emphasis I place on the process and the people aspect of it more so than the artistic angle of it. Now you say the, you talk about the goals of the composite as well. What is the, the goal? I'm sorry. The goal is to have it make it look like the person, like to resemble the person. It doesn't have to look exactly like them. But close enough to where it, it, it keys something and jumpstarts something, and the, you know, someone's, someone's going to recognize an aspect of that drawing and associate it with someone. Is there certain features that I noticed that it seemed that what you were trying to say was that there were certain features that were remembered by that witness? And, of course, you talk about the procedure, and maybe I should let you explain that procedure as well, is how you move ahead how do you start, and how do you move ahead with a witness? I think people don't know any of the process whatsoever. Sure. Um, it, it all starts with a handshake. And, you know, people come into my office, um, and or I go in, 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 into the room where they're at, and I shake their hand and make eye contact with them and introduce myself. You know, my name's Mike, or Michael, and um, I get their name, and, 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 and I sit down and, and start talking to them. And I, the, the first thing I do is develop rapport. I have to find some sort of common ground, some sort of commonality. So I try and know as much as I can about a lot of different things um, so, I can, so I can more easily jumpstart those conversations. Uh, it may be somebody comes in with, like, you know, a, a T-shirt on, you know, some heavy metal rock band, or a, a mom comes in with a keychain that has pictures of her sons in Little League uniforms and such. And, and, and so I find things that, you know, that I can quickly associate, things I know something about, and start asking them about that. And um, I'll give you an example. In Baltimore, when I was a full-time sketch artist there, I had a, a poster hanging in my office called The Bad Guys. And it was um, a caricature poster of all the different movie and TV, you know, the Sopranos, the Godfather characters and such. And people would come in, and, and they may not be able to, to remember who the first president of the United States was, but they, you know, they knew these, these cultural icons, the gangsters, so to speak. And they started asking about them and started talking about them, and we were able to talk about the movies and stuff like that. And you can see people start to relax. And, and after about 10 minutes of talking about it, they start relaxing. And then we go in and start talking about the process explaining and managing their expectations, what, what I'm hoping to get from them and what they can offer to me. And, um, and then once they, you know, once they know the, the ground rules, so to speak, and the expectations, 
it's almost like you can see it's almost like an air being let out of a balloon. You can see them just instantly relax, and then, then they want to try because their biggest fear when they come into the police station is this composite is going to get the wrong person in trouble when in fact it right. won't. Um, and so then I, I have them, you know, talking about the crime. Uh, if it's a sexual assault crime, I have them take me up to the up to the edge, so to speak, when the attack occurred, and I leave the I relieve them of having to tell me the gory details about everything else. And then um, I have them describe the face fully in as much detail as they can. And then um, I show them a book of facial reference pictures to reinforce what they're telling me because in memory, the, the visual part, the recognition part, the ability of people to, to be able to show you versus tell you is always stronger because people have different educational levels, different their ability to articulate is, is better in some than others, but they can all pick a picture out and show you. Right. Once they do that, then I then I sketch the picture again, much like building a house. You sketch the framework out. Then I let them view that, and that's the refinement process where they get a chance to tell me, no, you know, you need to change this or that's good. And once they get all done with that, then we render it in. And a couple times during the final rendering process, I show them the composite just to make sure I'm, I'm not going off in the wrong direction. And, and then. When I'm done, give them one last look, get their feedback, thank them for taking part in the process because I want them to walk away feeling good about what they did. I want them to feel like they were able to help. They feel good about it. And then I give it to the detective and give them any information I think might be relevant. And um, then I go on to the next case and wait for the detective to let me know they they caught the bad guy. Now, when we talked about the, you know, there was a, obviously a great injustice with Dwayne McKinney, and you did learn some things the hard way with that case, but you advance very quickly because you have some success with the composite drawings that you do uh, offer police enforcement. You can do this in a timely manner, and also that you're you're. You said that there is no difference between a child or an adult, and in fact, sometimes adults are easier to deal with in terms of eliciting a detailed description that's useful for a composite sketch. Why is that? Actually, I actually I believe that children can be better witnesses in some cases, and, and the reason I and the reason I say that is because. As we go through life, as you know, and become adults, you know, we we pick up a variety of, uh, you know, biases along the way, and, and things we like, things we don't like, and, and the things that color our perceptions of, of the truth sometimes, and or things that we see, and so you know, very young children don't necessarily have that yet. You know, it's it's you know, out of the mouths of babes, they say, you know, kids will come up. It's it's, it's really kind of funny because kids, and elderly people have a tendency just to pop off and say stuff and, and no one holds them responsible for it because it's very unbiased. It's very unfiltered. It's just straight out. This is what it is. And I use the example of a chair, you know, a, a, a child may able to tell you to take a three legged chair and say, okay, it's got three legs, the back it's Brown. And it's got like a, a big scratch on the seat. And an adult may give you partial description. Then they may go on about how they, they don't like Brown um, they thought the chair was too uncomfortable and they prefer fabric than wood. And they, and they start, you know, going off on tangents and stuff. And, and I think sometimes the, the child witness brings information that's so pure and unfiltered 
that I think that they shouldn't be discounted as, as witnesses. With all the, I just kind of introduced this while we we're waiting for you to connect, and in, in that there has been so much discredit. I just had a program a couple of weeks ago, and the making of a murderer, making a murderer, really highlighted that with Penny Bernstein, uh, that was raped on the beach and positively identified Stephen Avery, which was then totally exonerated after 18 years. Um, mm-hmm. So in light of that, I thought this is fascinating that you were able to get an, a you know, a composite from a, a detailed description from a six-year-old in light of all the discrediting of that eyewitness testimony. So tell us well, a little bit is... more about... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Tell us a little. Tell me a little bit. Tell you a little bit about about what. Well, what you explain the, the role of memory and accuracy in what you do as well. So tell our tell our audience what exactly uh, your ideas are, and what you've seen regarding memory and accuracy in making that composite sketch. Sure, um, I can tell you first of all that as much as people. You know, demonize and marginalize um, eyewitness memories being malleable and distortable. That's that's correct. But people do get it right, and I think part of the problem is with um, with eyewitness memories. It's not so much about um, what people remember as much as how we are able to retrieve it, how we're able to access it. Because really, as a police sketch artist, that's my job is to um, do memory mining, so to speak, you know, being able to take that memory and retrieve it and make it something that's going to be useful. Now, it would be very easy for me to say, you know, on the cases where I didn't get it right, so to speak, that it's, 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 I can blame it on the, on the witness, but it's not necessarily blaming on, on anybody as much as the fact that, you know, you have to be able to evaluate the eyewitness properly and you have to be able to find ways of accessing and retrieving that memory now you know we talk about protecting memory but it's really hard because you know once that person witnesses a crime they're going to witness hundreds if not thousands of faces between the time of the crime and the time that the police show them a lineup or the time they get in front of me as as the sketch artist they're memories are going to are already going to be distorted in varying degrees so it's up to to, you know to folks like myself to to understand how to retrieve that and different techniques to use to retrieve that uh is as purely as possible and you know sometimes you know you get it right and you're able to hit a home run and other times you know, people just, they just, there's, there's blocks and there's trauma. There's things that prevent you from getting it out or them from being able to share it. And, um, and, and you have to rely on other evidence at that point. Um, just like when um, somebody says, well, you know, this, this composite wrongly convicted somebody. And I say, no, it's not the composite wrongly. The composite is just a tool. It's more of an elimination tool than an identification tool. Once the composite identifies the person, I, would, I, would, I don't want to say that the artist is off the hook at that point, but really it's up to the detective to take that identification and gather evidence to corroborate it 
or exonerate that person. And, and sometimes under the best circumstances, the officers go through all the steps and, and later they find out that they were one step shorter. Information came out much later that they had no control of, or they got lazy or sloppy and uh, felt the pressure to have a conviction or arrest in, in, in shortcut, and uh, the wrong person gets convicted. Right. Now, you talk about a case in, in the book uh, where you a sketch that you made is taken door-to-door Eventually, uh, the original father in the in this case uh, denies any involvement, and then a, a boy yells that his uncle Tommy is involved. So, tell us about this case and what this demonstrates, and your role in this case. Sure, it was a it was a home invasion, sexual assault case, and this is like I tell you, kids have got no filter. I mean, they come up and they, oh hey, they say the darndest things. Well, in this case, a, a middle-aged woman, probably in her forties, was home during the day uh, a young man knocked on her door forced his way into her home uh, fired a, sh- a gunshot through her ceiling to to get her to, to gain compliance and, and sexually assaulted her and stole her car and so I went to her home and I sat down and talked to her and at the conclusion of the sketch and she was terrified, understandably, and she saw the sketch and started trembling and pushed it away from me and jumped up and ran to another room, and I heard her vomiting. I mean, she, was, she got nauseous. She got sick. I mean, the, just the, the visceral reaction she had, uh, it was so powerful that I knew that we were, you know, on the right track. It's like on television, the news people will always tell, hey, they cried, you know, tears are good TV. Well, in my business, if people have a visceral response like that, I go, okay, we're on to something. So the detectives took it door-to-door. They, they, they found the car in an area just south of, of the city where I drew the sketch. And um, so they found the car, so they, they determined a certain radius, and they started going door-to-door sharing the sketch. So when they knocked on the door, a young man came to the door. Um, he, you know, the detective said, here's a sketch, and we're looking for this person. Do you, do you know who this person might be? And he said, no, 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 I, I, I don't, I have no idea who it could be. And, and it, as it turns out, it was his brother, and he was covering for his brother. And of course, his, you know, kids are curious. A little kid comes by, pushes through, but says, hey, what, you know, like, what's going on? Hey, that's Uncle Tommy. And so Uncle Tommy turns out to be the person at the door's brother, and they're able to identify him and arrest him. And he's a very close match for the sketch. And how do you uh, and how do police proceed once they do have that that he looks very much like that sketch? Well, what they do is they oftentimes will um, obtain a mugshot, arrest booking photo, and or a driver's license photo if if they've never been arrested before, and they put it in what they call a photo array, a six pack, or a photographic lineup, depending upon what region or jurisdiction you're in. Essentially, they take six photos, one of the suspects, five of other people who look similar to, and they present it to the eyewitness. And then once the eyewitness um, makes a positive identification, oftentimes that will give probable cause for officers to go out and arrest the person without a warrant and then you know, interview them, Mirandize them, interview them, uh, collect whatever evidence they can legally without a search warrant. And sometimes that, you know, things that they, they find during the arrest will uh, provide probable cause for a search warrant to obtain you know, evidence from a car or a home or even 
things like DNA samples or hair samples and things like that to further strengthen the identification. And, and I think that's where, uh, you know, we've gotten in trouble with a lot of cases before DNA because they base these arrests and convictions solely on eyewitness identification when in reality now, maybe even then, there's more and more evidence that they can use to strengthen that identification or in some cases exonerate the person right there before it even goes to trial. Now tell us a little bit before we get into some other you know, dramatic examples in cases that you were involved with that are high profile and uh, very, very uh, interesting cases. When did facial, uh, digital facial imagery come into play? How did it come into play, and what was its development, and what, how much of a role did you have in some of that development as well? Well, years, years ago, I mean, when, when they first started, um, you know, doing sketches of suspects, you know, freehand artists, you know, companies were trying to develop uh, commercial products that they could sell to police departments, uh, not only to be, you know, helpful and develop products that have some significant social contribution, but also to make money, to make profit. And, you know, so they started making uh, these mechanical kits that had cellophane overlays with different facial features on them. And, you know, people would come and they would, they would pick the, out the noses and the eyes and such, and they would do the overlays to where it formed a, fuzz, a puzzle. It was almost like putting together a puzzle. And then they would, uh, you know, paper clip, paper clip them together, make a Xerox copy um, for a wanted poster, or if the person had a mustache, you know, they use a grease crayon to draw on a mustache. So it was very crude, but um, it worked. And then there were other uh, mechanical assembly uh, kits in England as well. So England and the United States were, they were doing parallel developments. The first one was the Identikit and, and the, uh, the E-Fit over in England. And so um, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, was when you first started seeing uh, computer software development. They would take those features and automate them. And so I got in early and uh, started working for companies as a consultant in, in the 1990s because I'd seen these products develop, and I knew that it was inevitable that they were going to develop as the technology got better and impact our industry. And they would, you know, they'd be putting, they'd be giving the, giving the ability to create faces, they'd be taking it away from the artists and giving it to the line officers, the detectives, the, the support personnel, whoever could sit down and talk to somebody and, and figure out the technology would now become a, a composite artist, so to speak, or a police sketch artist uh, by proxy. And so my experience with the companies was such that they were really interested in making a profit, but they didn't know anything about the product itself or the, the police industry and or the process of interviewing people. It was their whole pitch was with our software, you can develop a sketch in minutes. Mechanically, you could, but the process itself they weren't respecting in terms of interviewing people. They were, they were just not even acknowledging any sort of training aspect. So I thought, well, if this is going to impact my industry, I want to get in on it. I want to be the person driving. I want to be the conductor in the train and, and not the person in the caboose, so to speak. So I started working as a consultant, and I started training different agencies uh, using the software. And there was a real, we hit a certain point where there's a lack of development. And so I thought, well, 
there was a point in time I said, you know, I'm going to do it myself, and I'm going to go ahead and create a product, and I create a sketch copy set, basic um, composite system software, so I could properly dispense the training and have some influence in terms of how departments used it, how they perceived uh, facial composites in their investigative protocols, in their role as detectives. And I just figured the more faces that are out there, the more people that can do it means more bad guys are going to jail. Um, you know, some artists may be really invested and say, look, you know what, my pencil's better, I can do better than, than what the computer can do. Uh, but with the software tools we've developed and the uh, partnerships with other digital imaging softwares, you can really do what a sketch artist does with a, with a click of a mouse and a, an 8- to 16-hour course that we put on. And um, so that's what I'm doing today, and uh, I'm, I'm working on a, on, on a new book uh, that will instruct officers, law enforcement personnel, and, and forensic science students how to create, how to use these tools, both hardware tools and software, to create digital faces. In some instances, you don't have to be an artist. In other instances where you are an artist, uh, there are software tools and painter tools and stuff you can use to quickly develop your own libraries, quickly use the stylus and the tools within the software to create sketches that look very lifelike um, that you can more quickly disseminate. To, to law enforcement and the public. All right, interesting. Now let's talk about a specific case that you include in the book, and you talk about, I thought it was interesting that you say the most dangerous offenders are these young offenders, and I'll ask you why you say that, and probably will be demonstrated with the story about the pimp-style hustlers in Moreno Valley, California, uh, formed in 1993. So tell us a little bit about uh, what's different about this gang and why you think these young offenders are the most dangerous threat. And uh, explain this story for our audience. Well, you know, Dan, we're in a, we're in a digital age, and, and even back then it was all about video games. And, and uh, Even back then I can remember my kids playing Grand Theft Auto and Mortal Kombat and some of the real violent games. And I understood that you know kids were attracted to the whole cops and robbers, you know, good guy versus bad guy, and they're in, in these games are very violent. And my only proviso was, hey, if you're going to play the game, that's fine. It's a game as long as you don't act it out. We're fine. You can play it. But what happened was, is a lot of kids these days, and even back then, they didn't understand the line between reality and the game, so to speak, and so with all the violence that these kids are exposed to both on, on television, in their homes, in the, the video games and such, um, they were so desensitized to violence that once they, you know, once they're out there, it was like the world was a video game and they didn't realize that once you pull the trigger on a gun, you can't call the bullet back. You can't punch a reset button like you can a video game or start over and so what, is, what happens is I think that kids are probably the most dangerous predators of all because they, don't, they lack the inhibitions that adults have because in certain generations of adults, you know, there was consequences for misdeeds at home and when you're out on the street. And these days, um, I mean, I could go on a long diatribe about the effectiveness of the criminal justice system, but the bottom line is, is that the kids aren't being held responsible and there's no consequences for what they do. So it makes them very dangerous because 
they think they're invincible nothing's going to happen to them because oftentimes nothing does. So what was different about the pimp-style hustlers was, you know, um, not unlike most gangs, there's a charismatic leader. And in this case, um, this, this adult, this charismatic leader was pretty smart. He, he, he set up the gang like a multi-level corporation, and, and kids had to do certain things to earn their stripes, so to speak, and make more money. And they were talking about, you know, having IRAs and then taking the money from the crimes and investing it and putting it in the bank accounts and such. So it was um, it was very different. It was very forward thinking for a gang even back then. But if you look at you know gang models and stuff, I mean a lot of motorcycle gangs back then were already investing in in, in clubs and 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 laundering their money in, in in honest businesses. So he was just he was just taking what he what he'd seen out there on, on Wall Street and different you know legal and illegal gangs and stuff like that and, and putting it to work and, and wowing these kids into letting them think, hey, you commit these crimes. You're going to make a lot of money. We're going to invest, and you're going to make even more money. And um, that, with kids being bored and unsupervised and just craving excitement and such, it was a bubbling cauldron that just exploded in Moreno Valley and resulted in the, in the death of this young mother. Now, how was your composite integral to this case? Well... You know, they, they used one of the mechanical kits, and they just, you know, weren't happy with it. And I think the person did a very good job. But, again, it's like anything else, lack of training, lack of understanding, lack of knowing the process and such, um, got, them pro- got them a product that they weren't happy with. So, you know, they knew that I was in the area. I, did, I didn't live far away, and, and I was a law enforcement officer, and they already and they were familiar with my work. So they called me and said, hey, look, you know, we've got, like, 20 investors working on this thing and, and, and you know, we, need, we need to catch these people because you know the community demands that they're afraid these kids have already committed a bunch of other series of robberies and attempted carjackings and such and so they said you know take a crack at it and see what you can do so I interviewed the witness and she did such a great job I mean she was very observant she saw the shooting she saw the aftermath she went and called the police right away she was from a police family herself so, you know, she sat around the dinner table hearing the stories, and so she wasn't so – I mean, she was upset by what she saw, but it wasn't like the whole police procedural aspect of what was happening during the investigation was intimidating to her. So it made it very easy to connect with her and to form that relationship and to, and to form that partnership to work through this sketch. And as soon as the sketch hit the media and hit the news, um, they were getting some tips and they showed the sketch around some youths, and they identified um, this person in the sketch as a 13-year-old kid named Chris Lyons, who was eventually you know, arrested and convicted for it. But, I mean, I've had crimes where, they've, where I've had a composite go out, and they've identified the person in less than a minute, in like 30 seconds. And I've had cases go on, cold cases go on for eight years before a result comes up. Um, so I think the combination of a good eyewitness and the, and the police using the composite properly in terms of making sure it got wide distribution um, was, was, was great for having this kid quickly ID'd. And you talk about sometimes it, it doesn't happen right away. It doesn't happen within a few minutes. You talk about October 1986 with the sexual predator loose and 15 different sketches were made with Kenneth George Wade, which was 45 years old. Now, why did he remain such an elusive predator for so many years? 
tell us a little bit about what you learned and what you've included in about Kenneth George Wade. Sure. He was smart. I mean, he was, I mean, these predators, serial killers, serial rapists, they're smart people. I mean, this whole, this whole notion of a, of a quote, a dumb crook. I don't think there is such a thing. I think there's careless crooks. I think there's cocky crooks, but the Kenneth Wade was smart. Um, he had an idea of where he wanted to go, what he wanted to do. Um, he favored large apartment complexes near freeways uh, where he could walk around and target his victims anonymously and then be on the freeway fairly quickly and, and uh, be in another county quickly and elude police. And when, you know, back then in the 80s, you know, we didn't have the crime analysis tools that we have now. We didn't have people dedicated to, you know, going through crimes and, and collating the information and disseminating it to patrol officers and to detectives like we do now. Um, also, we didn't have the social media and, and the Internet. So if you put a composite out in Orange County, if the person lived in Riverside County like Kenneth George Wade did, no one would know it because he owned a business in Temecula in Riverside County. He did business in Orange County, but largely lived out there. So he got in, he got out, he got away, and um, no one was the wiser. And, and, of course, he went to jail you know, between, so there were some cooling off periods between his attacks. It was just the, the fact that law enforcement just didn't make the link because it was in that generation of the law enforcement where you know, we would read teletypes, we would rely on going to meetings and sharing information, you know, and a lot of people fell through the cracks then. And in this case, it was good old-fashioned police work. It was a street cop that started taking the information and saying, okay, I know that this guy has a tendency to hit in one place, and at some point he'll circle back around and come back in the same area again. And that's what he did. He, he patiently waited. And um, Kenneth George Wade would binge. It was, he was like, he was like, you know, testosterone is like had this insatiable sexual appetite. He would he would go on sexual binges, and so he went on this one sexual binge, and with all the information they're able to have, this detect I'm sorry, this patrol lieutenant from Anaheim Police Department, Joe Reese, he just they had an attack in Anaheim. He knew that he'd be attacking again. Eventually, would come back around. He just waited, and his patience paid off. He waited, and all of a sudden. It's Kenneth George Wade again. Chase was on. And he was able to capture him, and, and after that, uh, all the pieces fell together, and uh, the case closed. Now, before that, uh, Anaheim or the, the police had c consulted with the FBI's uh, Behavioral Science Unit, and they had called this guy a, a ritualistic offender, didn't they? They did, and that was uh, actually they consulted with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, uh, a sergeant who was trained by the FBI as a behavioral and a behavioral analyst. Um, during my research of the book, I was able to reach, um, you know, uh, former FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood, who pretty much wrote the book on, on sexual predators uh, for the FBI's. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the FBI's famed, you know, behavioral science unit you know, the whole science of the lamp through John Douglas and a couple of the other guys. And he, right. you know, he said that he normally has more, he normally requires more information, but based upon what I gave him, yeah, he, he said that he's, he's very, he's a ritualistic offender. 
And and the ritual came in from, you know, how he treated his victims and you know, how he treated them as if they were girlfriends. And he went through this whole process of, you know, telling them what to say and how to treat them and how to act and, and, and so forth. I mean, even to the point where he committed a rape in East Anaheim. And Anaheim's a big city, just to give your, your listeners context. It's a city of about 340,000 people in, in the center of Orange County. It's, it's over 60 square miles. So it, it, it stretches. It's a pretty good-sized city. So she moved from the east side to the west side just to get away from them, several miles. I mean, it just so one night he breaks into her apartment on the west side. He recognizes during the encounter it's her, and his words to her was, you know what to do. You know the drill. The drill was the ritualistic behavior, the whole girlfriend experience, the, you know, telling me, you know, how good I am in bed and how handsome I am, how, you know, how large my, you know, um, you know, how large I am and, and this, that, and the other. I mean, just, you know, referring to his genitalia and stuff like that. He wanted to feel puffed up and feel like a man and, and just be that guy, and that was part of the ritual. You also talk about that he had uh, three rape attempts in one day because – he really was, if he was um, discouraged, he would run away. If he had uh, resistance, major resistance, he would run away. Uh, but you also talk about how, um, and this is important, is the escalation in the aggression and the violence and even the, the daring. Yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, here, here's a guy that is prone to walking around naked in broad daylight and nothing, wearing nothing but a hat and a pair of tennis shoes, um, you know, walking in front of open windows between apartment buildings, just daring people to see him. And in, in one case, he's very passive-aggressive. He would, you know, he'd be frightened away easily. And, in, and during one attack, he actually um, pulled a knife out and led the, the victim around her apartment uh, at knife point and didn't realize until later but he stabbed her, and he, I mean, she didn't realize until later that he that, that she suffered a, a small stab, a slight stab wound. And um, this is where the dichotomy came in with him: is that you know it really upset him um, that you know he hurt this person because you know he wasn't about that. I mean, here was a guy that he reported you know that he would at night would look in the mirror at himself and be disgusted and start screaming at himself to stop raping. So he was very passive aggressive. The detective, the the detective in this case, um, you know, she's since passed away, and you know, she, the Santa Ana Police Department, trusted her with uh, taking on this investigation and, and, and leading it, and eventually interviewing him. And um, she did a phenomenal job. And, they, and, and you know, they normally, you know, police departments only they want a sworn detective and, and not, you know, not a civilian uh, investigator who you know doesn't carry a badge and a gun. And she did a phenomenal job in interviewing him and getting him to admit to all this. And, uh, you know, had he not been caught, who knows what might have happened because he was escalating. Yes. Speaking of escalation, you, you put in your book about a case in April 1997 with uh, a 10-year-old named Anthony Martinez. And uh, you worked with a couple of youngsters to make sketches, so to make a sketch for this. So tell us more about this story and the heartbreaking story of the key witness and how you got that information to be able to make this sketch. Tell us more about this case. 
Well, this this is like every case. It's it's, it's a heartbreaking case, especially when it involves children. And I, I had the privilege of, of meeting Anthony's mother on a couple of occasions, and, and I remember her telling me I was at a, an event with National Center for Missing and Exploited Children with John Walsh from America's Most Wanted, and I had a chance to meet her, and she was telling me she said, you know, Mike, she said Anthony and his and his Anthony was 10 years old, his eight-year-old brother and 10-year-old cousin. She said they were playing literally 20 feet outside our front door. She said, you know, kids were playing. We were adults were inside the house. It was in a fenced portion of the yard, uh, in this serial sexual predator child murderer, uh, Joseph Edward Duncan III, he rolled up in his car, and, and like most kids, the, you know, a lot of these predators, they'll use the whole, can you help me find my dog, can you help me find my cat, I'll give you a dollar. He did that with the kids, and Anthony was really wary, and he was, he was really, you know, he, was, he, he had a good head on his shoulders, by all accounts, great kid, very intelligent. And he kind of waved the guy off, and he came back around again. And, and this time he, he piqued a couple of their interests and got him outside the protected area of the fence. And he pulled a knife out, and, he, and the uh, suspect, you know, Joseph Edward Duncan the third, he actually tried to abduct Anthony's 8-year-old brother. He actually was focused on him. And Anthony jumped between the suspect and his brother, to save right. his brother's life, so the predator grabbed him instead and ran off, threw him in the car, and, and took off with him. And um, to hear those kids, I mean, I, I interviewed them. Uh, I, I, when, when I was called to the scene, I, I, was, I think it was the day after the, the abduction, and I walked into this roll call room, and there were police officers from every agency in that in, the, in that area. There, they were lining the walls. They were they were there to help and. The, there was a news media, you know, circus going on in the parking lot, and you know they had a couple agents in with me while I was talking to the kids, and I was on the floor. And we we're drawing and talking, developing a rapport. And every two minutes, it seemed like there was another agent coming and say, "Hey, you know, when are you gonna be done with this? The news media wants it. The news media wants it." And I and I, I said, "Look, you know what? I'm not working on their timeline for their news show. I mean, I want to be compliant and cooperative because they're very important to the process." The news media is a very, very important part of the law enforcement team when it comes to investigations like this. Um, right. And so I said, just let me do the process. And so it was very valuable in the fact that, you know, that there's some information that came out that the detectives needed. But, you know, just all the, the kids kept saying is, I, I just want my brother back. I mean, every two minutes, I just want my brother back. And it, it just can't help but just, you know, rip your heart out. And then, of course, in a lot of these cases, like the Samantha Runyon case, the Anthony Martinez case, uh, you know, any case where there's nothing more than eyewitness and a sketch artist gets called, or in these cases when I've been called, it, you almost feel like all eyes in the room are on you. Like, okay, do something. Because at that point, they've got nothing. They've got nothing at all to work with other than the eyewitness in you. And, and you want to make sure you everything right so you come up with a good sketch. So the investigation remains, you know, keeps that momentum and going in the right direction. And, and I don't want to be the person that just, you know, like, you know, just spins it off where it doesn't need to be. Now, your sketch, I, if I, what you've said is it generated about 30,000 leads, which is very, well, it's amazing. But there also was a decision to make another, was there a decision to make another uh, composite drawing, and again, tell us why and 
What was the one? I, I, what was I found interesting too is that you talk about how um, the witness said they had piercing blue eyes. Why is color not such a good idea with a composite drawing? Well, you know, color is not a good idea because I, I think that people have enough trouble remembering facial features versus texture and color. And it used right. to be that um, when you reproduce color several times, it degraded the color. Uh, of course, now that we have, we've got you know these digital programs and color printers and such, that's not much of a problem. That's not even a factor anymore. Right. But, again, people picking the right skin tone again, can, can throw, the, throw the investigation off. I mean, people sometimes they'll illustrate, say, for example, they illustrate blonde hair using the color yellow. Well, that's, 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 that's comic book blonde as far as I'm concerned. And that's got nothing to do with the hair color. So you know, people get really literal sometimes. So I just keep it black and white, very, you know, grayscales. Uh, but every so often there's going to be something that – stands out. I'll give you an example. And when I was the sketch artist in Baltimore for three years there, there were there would be African American eyewitnesses come and say, okay, this this person was black, but he had light green eyes. And in the African American community, that is something that's going to stand out. So there were sometimes I would just go ahead and do this black and white drawing, but include you know, use Photoshop to, you know, include the, the, the correct tone of green for eyes. Same way with the Anthony Martinez drawing. What had happened was is going back to the 30,000 tips, America's Most Wanted was at its popular, its most popular, its heights of popularity in terms of viewership and such, and cult following. Um, they had an artist that they worked with that they would bring in on cases to redo other people's work or sensationalize them for the use of their show. They wanted in on this case. They wanted to bring their own artist in. And the police agency didn't necessarily want that they liked what they had, but they were getting tremendous pressure to bring this gal in because she had great success. And so the alternative was the FBI would just send their own artist out because they actually found another witness who was an adult downtown that described somebody very similar. Their thinking at the time was an adult witness is better than a child witness, which I wholly disagreed with, but I said, look, you know what? Step away, take your ego out of it. It's all about finding this child killer. So if that's what they think is best, that's what's in the investigation at this point in time, let's just go with it. So the police were able to successfully hold off the America's Most Wanted artist, but yet they couldn't hold off the FBI because there was a, a new witness. So protocol-wise, that was proper to, to bring somebody else in, whether I agreed or not. Um, then when it when then when it was the case was thrown back to the Riverside Sheriff's Department, their their central homicide unit started looking at all the evidence, all the facts. They reinterviewed eyewitnesses, and it went from the FBI drawing back to my drawing being the primary uh, drawing that they felt was most reliable. So they said, you know, we want to take another run at this, but we want to really get this out in the media, put it on billboards. Yeah, but everybody keeps going back to this piercing blue eyes that this guy had. So why don't we do it in color? I said, why not? That's fine. We'll do it in color. And so the idea was was to get this piercing blue eyes and, and everything else in terms of whether the skin tone was correct or not. I mean, at the time, the 
the eyewitnesses family said, look, you know, we've had enough of our son being, our kids being exposed to law enforcement investigation or traumatized. We're done. Your artist can't re-interview them. And this was like four or five years after the case. And I get that, you know, people want to move on. They don't want, they, they have to protect their kids. I, I fully endorse their decision. So the, the really light blue eyes I illustrated and the skin tones and the color, the plaid shirt were all very literal based upon a verbal description, but no eyewitness feedback saying, yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, so what happened was, is, you know, they, they put it out there, nothing happened. And again, like the, like the Ken George Wade case, um, Joseph Edward Duncan III was a nomad. He wasn't even from this area. So they put that composite all over the place because he was from the state of Washington and South Dakota. No one knew him here. And if they, then the people that did know him here were very protective of him anyway, wouldn't have called the police. So it took the slaughter of that family in Idaho and the abduction of those children and his eventual capture and the interview with the police where he tipped his hand and, and disclosed that he was involved in the Anthony Martinez abduction of murder. That's the only reason. Yeah, you know, they, and, and when and when he did tip off his hand, um, at first they were thinking, well, you know, maybe not. And they went and dug up the composite, and they saw my my color composite, and noticed how much it resembled. And they said, oh, we need to call the Riverside Sheriff's Department. And so what had happened was, when he bound Anthony with duct tape, he left a partial fingerprint on the duct tape. But because it was from the top of his thumb. When the police roll your thumbs, they don't always, they get the flat of your thumb, not always the top. So they got a search warrant, did the tops of his thumbs, compared them to the latent prints left on the duct tape, and made a positive match. And now he's right. sitting on death row in Terre Haute, Indiana, waiting to get executed. Interesting. You talk about another case in uh, Villa Park, May 1997, victim Jamie Pang. 33, former exotic dancer, gorgeous woman, housekeeper. Very strange case. Could you tell us a little bit about this, what happened? Sure. Villa Park, yeah, Villa Park is a small city. It sits right in the middle of the city of Orange, where I grew up, where I policed for over 30 years. And nothing ever happens there. I mean, it's the kind of place with a, it's got a corner gas station, a grocery store, and it's all big houses. The wealthy live there. You know, I think the worst thing that happens is, you know, people run stop signs, and that's pretty much about it. And it remains that way today. And so what had happened was, is, uh, you know, Janie Pang was a former exotic dancer, beautiful young woman, mother of two children. I think it was two, two children. And um, her husband was a financier, an entrepreneur. And um, by all accounts, she was living a great life. Uh, you know, tended to her roses, roller skated, very striking woman, stood out in the neighborhood, very friendly. Everyone, everyone liked her. Everyone loved her. And so one day there's a knock at the door, and her housekeeper answered the door, and here's a man dressed in a suit, briefcase, looked professional, had nice haircut. And um, she invited him into the home and, and went upstairs to, to, to get Miss Pang. And when Miss Pang came down the stairs, um, he produced a gun and, started chasing her through the house. Housekeeper ran out the door, went to a neighbor, called the police, and uh, he chased Janie upstairs. She tried to hide in the closet. He fired one bullet through the closet door, and as bad luck would have it, you know, had hit her right in the chest and killed her. And the person fled. 
they called me. I, I came in, and again, it was it was a huge deal. And nothing. I mean, I don't. I couldn't remember all my years working there where there was ever a homicide in Villa Park. I mean, Kevin Costner went to Villa Park High School starting baseball there, and, and I mean, nobody. Mm-hmm. It was just just bucolic, just nice little place. So, uh, you know, sifted pandemonium. Got the sketch. Um, very distinct hairstyle. Pencilton mustache like Clark Gable looked like it was pasted on his face, according to the eyewitness. And so they found out through their investigation that Janie Pang's husband was involved in some litigation and actually owed his, uh, his law firm about, I think, you know, several thousand dollars. I don't recall, but maybe it was $20,000, some significant yeah. figure. And the lawyer was due about four grand of that uh, 20000 that was paid to the firm. So when they went to the law firm with the composite, um, the secretary looked at the composite and said, why do you have a picture of, um, you know, Hugh McConnell, their lawyer? They said, why do you have a picture of Randy, um, is what they call it. And we, have, we have plenty of pictures of him here. And so they got a driver's license photo of him and noticed how much he resembled the sketch right down to the part in the hair and the very squared-off hairstyle. And so if you threw a, a fake mustache on the photograph of uh, – Hugh Randy McDonald, you would see that, yeah, he very much resembled the sketch. Well, further into their investigation, they find out that, you know, he mailed some belongings home with a suicide note to his wife and um, just disappeared and faked the suicide off the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. And from there, he embarked on this odyssey of, of hiding from the police, uh, shaving his head, taking on assumed names, you know, looking at obituaries uh, to take on these identities and you know, went to Utah for a while and was always one step ahead of the police. Whenever they thought they identified his location, he was out, out the door before they got there. Eventually, they were able to tap in the Social Security system and found out that someone uh, that they suspected was him was receiving Social Security checks. And they backtracked and found out they were being deposited in a particular bank. And they found out that a woman was making regular deposits. So they went and they followed her back to a residence in Sherman Oaks, a suburb in Los Angeles, and went into the house and found him, found him hiding, and uh, arrested him, brought him back for trial, and um, he was acquitted. And to this day, it's still a mystery if, in fact, he was the one that killed her, somebody else. Um, since then, you know, obviously, of course, she was murdered, and then her husband, he remarried, and he eventually uh, died under suspicious circumstances that was finally attributed to uh, an intentional overdose. And... Um, so there lies the mystery. Who done it? Go apart. Now we've got time for about one more story, and this is a sure. again, this is a very, very uh, strange story. And talk about stranger abduction, which is not very common, but um, sometimes it seems like it's always in the news, dominating. So we're talking about Samantha Runyon, and. Uh, Again, another similar to the story we talked about just a little bit before, but this story is going to be a little bit different because as I talk to the audience waiting for you, there's some uh, law enforcement initiatives or, pardon me, uh, assistance in terms of some of the software like Rapid Start, and so we can talk about that. So tell us a little about this heartbreaking story about Samantha Runyon and her abduction. Sure. This is one of those cases that tests community resolve and law enforcement resolve and working together. Yes, law enforcement agencies can be very territorial in terms of when it comes to investigations, and oftentimes it takes strong leadership 
to make sure that people aren't stepping all over each other and that everyone's not, you know, everyone's working in sync, so to speak, and, and not trying to take all the credit, you know, in the prestige in terms of solving the case. And this, and that wasn't the case with the Samantha Runyon case. You know, she's abducted in July of, um, I believe it was uh, 2002. Um, she's out playing with her, with her, um, with her playmate, six-year-old. You know, mom was working, grandma's watching her. And um, after dinner, they went and played in an alleyway near their apartment. And they were approached by this person and uh, who abducted Samantha. Again, using the, the patented, have you seen my little dog trick? And I'll give you a dollar, you know, um, that these uh, predators are so fond of. So after she was abducted, you know, the police responded. And it was a huge response, as it should have been. And I didn't get to her until after midnight, and by then she talked to everybody under the sun, and I don't, I'm surprised I even got a really good description from her. But once that description came out, or I'm sorry, the description was broadcast and the composite was released to the media, you know, tens of thousands of leads started coming in. The great thing about having the FBI come in and do an investigation is while they may be better suited to do the footwork in terms of investigative follow-up on terrorism cases and large financial fraud cases. Typically, they're not geared towards homicides and, and things like this. But they have a tremendous amount of resources they can bring to bear on a case. Uh, they can give you availability of their crime lab, of all their different forensic experts. And in this case, they had a new software called Rapid Start. And what Rapid Start would do is that it would take all the – it was a it was a relational database type of program where it would take all this all this tip information and collate it in terms of giving it levels of importance, tying it to other potential leads and such. And it was a great organizational tool for law enforcement to be able to sift through these tips and, and follow them up. And keep in mind, whether it's five tips or 50,000 tips, even if you catch the perpetrator in the, in the middle of the investigation, and at the, time you, at the time you capture him or her, you only follow up on 20,000 tips, you still have to finish up and follow the other 30,000 and close them out because what you risk is the defense attorney saying, hey, you never fully followed this up. There's 20,000 tips that it could have been the real suspect, and all they have to do, remember, is create reasonable doubt. So Rapid Start was a great way to, to organize it, collate it, uh, keep it, keep everything in sync and in, in moving in one direction. And in this case, um, you know, Sheriff Mike Crow at the time was uh, again a, he was a, a new sheriff, and you know he had great leadership um, capabilities. Unfortunately, it was his judgment that got him in trouble and sent to prison. But um, he was a great leader for that investigation. He kept the he he put a human face on it. And in the human face he put on it and the personality and force of nature that he put to it was backed up by all this technology and software and, and lab work and such because the suspect in this case, Alejandro Avila, um, left a treasure trove of, of information and, and evidence behind. Um, not only did the eyewitness get a great description of a partial license plate, the color of the car, and was able to describe the composite, but where they found Samantha's body, um, they found footprints, tire prints, you know, other types of DNA evidence. And then ultimately when they arrested him, 
you know, there was other evidence on him as well, you know, scratch marks where she was fighting for her life while he's sexually assaulting her. And, um, you know, you know, tear, you know, tear stains, you know, they found in, in, in his car with her DNA on it, you know, child porn on his computer, the tennis shoes left the, the, the shoe prints, um, the tires that left the tire prints, the shoe box, the receipt. I mean, it just, his cell phone information, you know, and it was just, the case was wrapped up in, in five days. It was phenomenal. It was, it was, it was in all the years in law enforcement, it was probably one of the biggest, most massive manhunts that was the best organized in terms of everyone coming together for a common purpose, a common goal. Uh, the family was strong. The families cooperative law enforcement. Everybody did everything they had to do to bring this little girl home. And unfortunately it, it wasn't enough. You talk about the massive response from law enforcement, um, you talk about 400 investigators assigned 300 mm-hmm. sheriff deputies and 100 FBI and then other officers from other agencies. This is national news. George Bush weighs in and, it, and contacts personally Attorney General Ashcroft to look into this. So this is how big a case um, John and Reeve Walsh's organization, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is involved, so you can't get any more high profile. You bring the the FBI brings in Dr. Park Dietz from Law and Order fame to come in, who had interviewed Dahmer and John Hinckley Jr. trying to get a grasp of this because it didn't get uh, solved right away, and and the the reward was offered 100 grand, 150 grand, I think it went up to 200 grand. What's interesting in your book, you provide comparative sketches with the perpetrators and many many are very uncanny uh and this one is one of those very very uncanny resemblance to the to the killer himself uh, yeah very very amazing case in that all the people that were trying like you say to try to find this girl in the in the you know slim hope that she was still alive and then afterwards to capture this uh, perpetrator and bring him to justice. You know, and, and, and that's what it's all about to me. I mean, I, you know, I, I spent a, over, over half my lifetime in law enforcement finding, finding ways to catch crooks because I, I figured that the best way to protect people was to be able to find and arrest the bad guys. And, and this was just another way for me, uh, for me to do it. And I think that Sometimes that you know victims get overlooked, and I think this was a you know you know my my book was a great way to you know honor somewhat of their life story and to be able to describe uh, a very human process, uh, several that we go through in terms of memory, in terms of you know the sketch artist involvement, and all and how we interact with all the other experts. I remember one time a woman asked me, she said that um, you must get bored sitting here in your, your office drawing all day because, like, when I was at Baltimore, I'd, I'd do, like, you know, 10, 15 drawings a week and just this insane amount of crime. I said, you know, it's not about the drawing for me. It's about the people who walk through my door and their amazing stories of survival, uh, their their tenacity, you know, the, the things that they go through and they overcome, and just their life stories and their backgrounds themselves. It's, it's just fascinating, and I'm just humbled to be a part of, 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 of all of this. And, um, I mean, it's, it's just it's a career I still – I'm involved with, and um, you know, sometimes I'm online, 
and on the phone interviewing eyewitnesses, and other times I'm there in person. I mean, I, I find I use any way I can find, you know, um, you know, legally and technologically to 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 help police departments, help victims, and and try to further my reach in, into uh, law enforcement to be able to catch these bad guys. And I'm not the only one. There's others out there doing it. I mean, there's, there's you know, you see composites out there all the time, and and people. People all often ask, you know, you know, how do you do this? And I thought, you know, the only way to probably effectively explain it is to write a book about it. Sure. You know. So. Now you talk you you talk about uh, your software company, which in conjunction has a training aspect to it, because you say they you know they both go together hand in hand. And you also talked about your workload. You know, we're talking about back from the '80s to to currently, so. Tell us about the importance. Tell us about the need, and talk us. Tell us about maybe just to give us an idea of the numbers. Because if you're doing that many composite drawings in a week, uh, the idea that you have something that assists um, makes that those composite drawings quicker, maybe easier, or more available to people less inclined to be artists first, and police officer, and yet police officers first rather than artists first. So tell us about this need, the importance, and what kind of numbers we're talking about, and a little bit about your your company in the training and preparation for this occupation. Sure. Um, first of all, the numbers. Uh, I can tell you that um, I just counted it up the other day, actually. Um, in the last four years, I've uh, produced over 400 composite sketches on cases ranging wow. from homicide, sexual assault, non-fatal shootings, um, you know, attempted abductions and such. Uh, so over 400 in, in a four-year period. I was averaging over 100 a year. I was probably the, one of the busiest um, composite sketch artists in, in the United States. Uh, I was I was pretty much uh, doing uh, the same amount of work that artists at, at NYPD and Houston Police Department was doing. I was doing it as much or more um, on average on a, on a yearly average. So I've been pretty busy. Um, I think there's I think there's an importance. Uh, for it, I think that um, you know, outside of DNA, you know, your you know DNA is kind of taken center stage as it should because it's it's a very um, a very good technology, a very good uh, crime fighting tool. Uh, but I think what's happening with composites now is I think with the proliferation of cameras, uh, in terms of surveillance cameras affixed to buildings, uh, and you know people's cell phones and, and, and banks and 7-Elevens and convenience stores, things like that, um, that Officers or detectives feel there's less of a need to do composite sketches, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think that uh, there's instances where these bank cameras and other cameras catch a person's likeness very well, so there's no need to do a sketch. But sometimes the image is still blurry and taken from an angle that nobody would be able to ID them, but detectives still rely on them. Um, so I try to encourage them to, you know, put a composite from an eyewitness description next to that surveillance photo, and not only are people going to recognize the face, but they're probably going to recognize the person's posture, distinctive clothing they're wearing, the way they stand or whatever. It's, it's a very powerful combination. And I think it's like anything else. It, I think the, every so often you have to go back and remark it and, and, and show the value of these things uh, because, uh, you know, police retire, they get promoted, new people come in, they don't always pass on the information to them. Uh, so my goal, again, in writing the book and uh, you know, setting up the company is to remind detectives and people listening or people in 
you know, entering forensic science careers, that if you can't draw, you can still make a positive contribution by, you know, encouraging your agency to buy a facial composite software, you know, hopefully mine, SketchCop, they said, and, um, and then engage in some sort of training. And, and I think that um, it's important for law enforcement agencies to have this option. So if they don't have an artist on hand, they have people trained to use the software because no one can predict when these horrible crimes are going to happen. And, and as these child abductions have shown, when all you've got is an eyewitness and an important heinous crime like this, you don't want to be digging around looking for a local artist or who might be drawing or who might be retired or whatever. You want to have your own in-house person, your own tool available saying, hey, you know what, bust out the software, let's sit down with this eyewitness, and let's get a sketch out. And so that's what my company does is, that, you know, not only do I consult on cases myself and provide a remote drawings. Um, I actually had somebody contact me from Romania who was a victim of a crime, wanted me to link and put them online on the computer and, and draw a composite, which I can do. Uh, I do composites on a regular basis for uh, police departments back east, uh, you know, through a remote hookup. And um, I roll the local agencies in Southern California. But if they don't need me and they want software as a solution, then I'm glad to hold trainings online, in person, sell them the software, support it, and give them what they need so they can turn out some really good faces and catch some really serious criminals. Right. Uh, very interesting. You know, the, the thing is with SketchCop, too, and then maybe it sounds like a little bit like what we went through is, you know, the process of, of sketching, but mostly your book is really about these dramatic cases that you were involved with. And so I think we, we touched on a couple of them, but for those that were, were listening, there are some fascinating stories that were, again, the perpetrator wasn't caught for a few years, but the uh, the development of the sketch and then the importance of that sketch, sometimes not immediately, but then later on, is very uh, dramatic and, and expressed in these some of these uh, stories that you have in your book. So uh, very, very interesting. I, I wanted to ask uh, just one last question in that it seems that, uh, at least just from me, is that some of the witnesses, even though they were traumatized, even uh, though they were young, led to these detailed descriptions that you were able to make this composite drawing and successfully uh, be able to make an arrest or a conviction uh, as a result. Is part of, or am I just looking at this wrong, part of it in that uh, a person can, memor or can remember certain specific details like a nose or like you mentioned a hairstyle, a distinctive hairstyle, or the, how important are those details uh, like eyes and mouth features and how a mustache would say uh, was described as uh, in your book a certain way so you uh, drew it that way. How important are some of those features later in not so much the accuracy in that the composite looks exactly the same, but that those specific details like eyes and ears, those pronounced features that we would have and we would see um, more importantly, I would think, is that part of the uh, the value of the composite more so than the accuracy of that composite? I think it tends to add to the uniqueness of it. And when I say that, as I always ask people at the outset, is there anything distinctive about this person that would set them apart from a similar-looking person on the street. 
and, and sometimes they'll say, yeah, the person had like really big eyes, you know, and that may be the starting point for us. So if we, you know, get nothing else but the big eyes correct, uh, then, then that's a distinctive feature. You know, maybe that the person, yeah, has really large ears. Like typically people, I'll ask them, I always like to laugh, and say, it's a $64,000 question, what do his ears look like? And I go, I didn't really notice his ears. But yet they can tell you that, you know, the person had, you know, a certain hairstyle or, you know, uh, some people will tell you they were looking away and they, 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 they didn't see certain things, but it's trying to get them to focus on the face in their mind before they looked away to catch these things. But I try to, I try to pick on something that's going to be, you know, distinctive to them that they remembered to capitalize on as an anchor point to build around the rest of the sketch around. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and and we've, like we've established a, We've established, of course, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we can establish, of course, I can draw a good composite. I just can't tell time really well. So, you know, during the different time zones. So, I, again, I apologize to your listeners and yourself for, for, for burning up about, you know, nine or ten minutes of, of your show waiting for me to call. But um, the, the cool thing about this is that, you know, from this book, for your, for your listeners out there, that this will evolve into taking some of those cases and expanding on them, becoming their own books. So if they were really interested in that particular case, the chances are it's going to develop into its own book someday soon. Yes, yes. Yes, because they're standalone. They're fascinating cases that would make, uh, you know, four or five books out of this book in terms of telling the, the entire story, which you obviously have access to as well. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about this, Michael. Uh, for those that might want to, say, contact you or find out more about your work. I know this is a Wild Blue Press uh, release, uh, a publisher that uh, Steve Jackson and company, and with uh, great, great other uh, great authors as company on this uh, publishing company as well. So tell us a little bit about that and where people might be able to contact you, ask questions. Do you do Facebook? Do you have a website? Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely, uh, Dan. Uh, Wild Blue, Wild Blue Press is my publisher, and you mentioned Steve Jackson. Uh, he's been a great mentor, and everyone at that company has been very supportive, and I'm just privileged to be part of their stable of, of stellar and star true crime authors. And so that being said, you know, I have an authors page there, and, and you can access my book or purchase my book on their website, or you can go to Amazon uh, for, you know, to access it in Kindle form and in paperback form. I do have a website, uh, sketchcop.com, www.sketchcop.com. And I'm also on Twitter, at Sketchcop. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Michael W. Street, The Sketchcop is my public page. And you can also find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, that, I'm flirting with uh, starting up an Instagram account so I can start, you know, posting drawings every day and different, you know, interesting things that, you know, visual things will stimulate people. But, uh, you know, keeping up three social media sites and a website is, is a, a task, a, a job unto of itself. So, but people are free to contact me, uh, of course, on my email address, michaelsketchcop.com. Um, and just go to the website and you know, buy the book, obviously, and I'll be happy to answer any questions uh, people have of me. Uh, you know, follow me. Uh, I'm really good about getting back to people. I, that's part of this whole thing. I love the, um, the fan interaction. I really enjoy, you know, getting messages from people right. and people who are interested in the job itself, interested in my career, the cases, you know, how do you become a sketch artist, you know, what have you done, and it's, it's just, you know, I'll, I'll 
I'll go wherever they want me to go. I just, you know, I won't get too personal about shoe size or waist size and things like that. But you know, other <laughs> things in terms of other things in terms of crimes yeah. and stuff, I'm an open book and I, and I welcome their inquiry. Well, I want to thank you very much, Mike, for coming on and talking about SketchCop. It's a very, very uh, fascinating book, filled chock full of uh, amazing cases, but also just this very, very unique uh, perspective that you bring law enforcement and, of course, to this program, True Murder, just a completely different perspective, very, very fascinating. I want to thank you very much, and you have a great evening, and hope to again to talk to you real soon. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.